0: You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California.
1: So today we embark upon a new teaching series here at Central called Jesus, Rude and Confusing. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Kind of a controversial topic, right? But um, over the next six weeks, I wanted us to talk about the most controversial passages in the Gospels, the ones that we perhaps... I don't know, find the most offensive or confusing, bewildering. Jesus, believe it or not, uh, seems a little cranky sometimes (laughs) in the Gospels. And so, you know, I thought it would be a cool idea for us to look at that. And we're a church that doesn't shy away from the tough topics, right? And so over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at different passages in the Gospels like... There's a moment when Jesus commends a man for embezzling money from his boss. There's another moment where he tells his disciples uh, just before his arrest to go buy some swords. There's another moment where Jesus, um, oh gosh, I got them listed here. He He says we shouldn't fear people who can kill the body, but instead we should fear God who can throw both body and soul into hell. Um, He talks about, um, he calls a Canaanite woman a dog at one point. Um, And then at the end of his life on the cross, according to Matthew's gospel, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then today we're looking at a passage out of Luke 14 where Jesus tells us that his disciples hate their family. What's that about? So there's lots of good, good areas to cover here, and so this morning we're going to be reading out of Luke chapter 14. Let's, let's do that now, and this, this will be up on the screen, I believe, for you to follow along. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the, estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king? will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can be my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. It's uh, strong words, right? It's funny. I, I have a friend who, when he was a teenager and a brand new Christian and was full of all that new Christian zeal, heard this passage preached on in church and went home that day and told his parents, I'm no longer a part of this family. Uh, I'm a part of God's family now, and so I want nothing to do with you. I'm going to move out. And then he also went into his bedroom and boxed up all his possessions because, of course, Jesus says here to give away all your stuff. Uh, now as a teenage boy, he didn't have much. It was just all the crap in his bedroom, right? He'd fit in a couple of boxes. But, um, you can imagine how crushed his parents were, right? How much his words were hurtful. And he eventually came around and he apologized. But, you know, it's easy for us to look at a situation like that and say that he completely misinterpreted Jesus here. Completely missed the point of this passage and, and took things way too far. And in a way He did. But I actually think that he rightly discerned the spirit of Jesus' words here. I think he actually was responding to the actual spirit of this passage because Jesus is really calling us to a radical shift in the way that we think and live. He's calling us to a radical new way of living whereby the things that we thought once defined us, like our family, our possessions, our jobs, right? That these things don't actually define us as much as Maybe we think they do. Jesus is saying that our possessions, our jobs, our closest relationships don't actually represent some kind of ultimate reality that we have to abide by. Jesus calls us here to radically reimagine ourselves and the world in which we live and deconstruct. This is very deconstructive of Jesus. Jesus is calling us here to deconstruct the definitions of reality and identity and meaning that we've inherited that we've received from the most powerful institutions in our lives, like our family, or our culture. Um, But specifically, he's talking about the family, right? And back then, one's identity was really defined by one's family, much more than it is so today modern liberal western society has by and large emancipated us from this idea that our family defines everything about us right we're all told that we can go out into the world and you know invent ourselves that we can essentially you know go out and and you know create the whatever life we want we're told we can be anything we want in the world right um as americans we're, we're told that our family, our, our, the, the socioeconomic status we were born into doesn't have to define the rest of our life. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? Work hard and, and go out and, and invent ourselves in the world. Not so much in the ancient world. In fact, that, that idea is entirely American, entirely Western and modern and, and, and liberal. This was not the case in the ancient world. Your family, the, the, the socioeconomic status you were born into, determined the rest of your life. Determined who you are, where you belonged, who you could talk to, who you could marry, what power you had, what power you didn't have. Everything was determined by your family, by the identity you were born into. And, you know, even though the case is different for us today, our family still determines an enormous amount of our identity, right? I'm, I'm, I'm the father of a two and a half year old, soon to be another little girl, as we talked about earlier. Um, And I'm learning how much power I have to define reality and define identity for Lucy. I mean, it's an enormous amount of power an enormous amount of responsibility. It's kind of scary. I mean, I don't want to overdo it, right? I want Lucy to feel like she has, that, that she can discover for herself what she likes and who she wants to be. She gets to be who she wants to be in the world. But yet she still looks to Emily and I for direction. She still wants to know, like... What we think about her and, and who, who she is to us and what we want for her. She still wants to know those things, right? And in fact, that's, that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing, especially when you're like two. <laughs> Some structure is good, right? Uh, it, but you, you don't want to overdo it as a parent. I, I don't want to overdo it. I want her to discover who she is on her own, right? But the, the point is, even today, our family has an enormous amount of influence and power over us. Um, but much, much so are in the ancient world. So for Jesus to call that into question, for Jesus to call that into question and to suggest that there is another identity that's more powerful than your family, that defines reality for you more than your family, I mean, that is earth-shattering stuff. This was, this was a way of calling into question ultimate authority. Think of this being not unlike the slogan that Andre Henry uses. Andre Henry is a black activist who uh, has spoken here at Central numerous times and is a friend of this community's. He has this t-shirt that he's created with a slogan on it that says, it doesn't have to be this way. Anybody buy that t-shirt? A couple of you? Yeah, but you've heard the slogan, right? It doesn't have to be this way. And and by that, Andre doesn't just mean that the state of race relations in the United States right now doesn't have to be the way it is. He's really applying that to any and all unjust systems of our world and times. He means that the current economic situation, our political situation, our our religious context, that any unjust system of our world, be it racial, economic, political, religious, etc., it doesn't have to be this way. Meaning that we have the power to change it. But that also means, subtly so perhaps, that there are many people in our world today who believe that the way things are, are the way they have to be, right? To say things that it doesn't have to be this way is a very kind of subversive thing to say because it suggests that many people do think that these monolithic institutions and powerful systems like capitalism and, and, and the church and, you know, one's family like, these things are the way they are, and who are you to question them? This is the way the world works. I don't know about you, but I am often engaged in conversations with family members or, or friends, maybe, maybe on social media, where you know, we're, we're talking about some current event issue, some, some political issue, some religious issue, and I get the feeling when talking to them, that they, they have this metaphysical belief that the current economic situation or political situation or the, or the way the church is, you know, this is just the way things have to be. This, this is just the way things are. This is the way they've always been. And who are you to challenge that? Right? You ever, you ever get that sense when talking to people that there's this there's, there's underlying belief that the way things are are the way they have to be. There's no change in them, you know. I talk about sometimes the fact that eight men in the world own as much wealth as half of the world's population. Right? You bring up something like that or um, or I talk about how we could make healthcare and education affordable. Not free. We could make healthcare and education affordable if we just stopped dumping trillions of dollars on wars in the Middle East. And the response I often get from family members is, "Yeah, you know, they, they, they just roll their eyes and shrug it off as if I'm complaining about the force of gravity or the weather. as something that's immutable and unchangeable. When we are absolutely responsible for making the world the way it is. We created this. this situ- it doesn't have to be this way, though. I, I love this movie, The Mission, with um, Robert De Niro. I don't know if you guys have seen it um, before, but there's this scene at the end after this horrific um, genocide of these indigenous tribes in the jungles of South America ordered by essentially the Catholic Church. And the bishop, what's that, spoiler alert, well, it's what, from like 1979? <laughs> anyway, if, you've seen, if you haven't seen it, okay, I'm spoiling it for you. But anyway, at the end, the bishop is thinking about the horrific tragedies that have unfolded that he essentially has allowed to happen. And his counselors tell him, thus is the world. And he responds while looking out the window, no, thus we have made the world. Things do not have to be this way. And, and when people claim that they do, they are believing in a kind of God, in a kind of, you know, a celestial kind of metaphysical structure about the world. And actually, you know, when I When I specifically talk about economics with some of these people and they believe that, you know, capitalism is just, it is is immutable and unchangeable, this is the best system we have. You know, I I think what they often mean is, well, I think the undercurrent is that they're afraid of changing these systems because it means that they're no longer going to be at the top of the social ladder. They know quite well that these systems are changeable. It's just that they know that if they're changed, they're probably not going to be at the top anymore. And so it's a, it's a fear-based reaction. The point is, the world does not have to be the way it is. These systems are not immutable and unchangeable. We can resist them and change them. And this is the radical and daring insight I think that Jesus has here, when he tells his disciples the value of the kingdom of God and, and its path more than their family, more than their possessions more than these monolithic structures in their lives. He's telling us that the most powerful systems of this world do not define us. Do not have a kind of absolute authority over us. We must be willing to let go of our past. We must be willing to let go of the views of our parents and the pressures they put on us to conform, we must be willing to disappoint even our family and maybe even alienate them for the sake of choosing the way of Christ, the way of love, I mean, the way of justice, the way of truth and honesty in one's innermost being. This is a hard message. It's scary to do this, but it's the cost of discipleship. And this is what Jesus is talking about in our passage here today when he says, what king, what king goes out to wage war against another king and does not sit down first and and consider whether he is able to be victorious? He's talking about the cost of discipleship and how we have to understand what we're signing up for here. To call ourselves a disciple of Christ comes at a cost. We have to know what we're signing up for here. How choosing his path, the path of love and justice and self-sacrifice and pursuing truth and honesty in one's innermost being, how that can cost us a lot. It can cost us our closest relationships. It can cost us our very lives. Specifically, he's talking about it costing our relationships with our family and many of us know what that looks like. Many of us are estranged from our family because of deconstruction. I know I am. You know, many parents take the rejection of their theology and their politics as a tacit rejection of them, as an act of disrespect and even hatred towards them and the way that they raised us. I know my parents have felt that way, and you know, my parents have not disowned me, but some of you have been disowned by your parents because you're gay or because you no longer think theologically and politically like they do. This stuff comes at a cost. Deconstruction can cost you a lot. For many of us, our deconstruction has led us us away, to some degree at least, from our family. It's created a breach. And to be clear, that is the cost of discipleship. Of following this path of love and justice and truth and honesty in one's innermost being. Sometimes we need to choose between the worldview and the values of our parents and our family and the worldview and values of Christ. And that that choice can feel like an act of disrespect or an an act of anger. or Be received as an act of resentment. We may even harbor feelings of disgust and anger for our racist or homophobic or fascist family members. You know, maybe we should. Maybe that's a sign that we really care about these issues, that we really care about justice and the path of love and justice, the path of Christ. You know, I'm kind of concerned about, about people who do not have an emotional reaction when they see others advocating violence against the vulnerable, when they see others making jokes about gay people or immigrants, when they see people or hear people using scripture and the name of God to justify all kinds of bigotry and greed. We absolutely should feel disgust and anger with people who do those things. I believe we should. So when Jesus says here that his disciples and their family, um, or that the disciples hate their family, when Jesus says here that his disciples hate their family, perhaps there's somewhat of a a literal reading that we can take there, a semi-literal reading of that. Now, I think it should be said that there's, evidence Jesus did not hate his family. He loved his mother. His mother was with him throughout his entire ministry. In fact, we know that at the cross, she was there. John tells us that upon Jesus' death, right before it, he looks down and says to one of his disciples, we don't know which one, but he looks down, it probably was John, his beloved disciple, it says, and he says, essentially, please take care of my mother. Take her into your house as if she were your own. So Jesus loved his family, right? The the, the message here is not to hate your family for the sake of hating your family. There's nothing virtuous about that, right? That's not the point of this. That's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. But this is a radical calling. To side with the kingdom of God over the other messages and powers in our lives. I'm reminded how Jesus reacted to his family when they interrupted him one day while he was teaching in the temple. The story goes that, you know, Jesus was teaching in the temple as he was off to do, and someone comes in and interrupts him. As if, you know, like right now, somebody came in and interrupted me and said, um, excuse me, your mother and your brothers are outside. They wanted me to come in and stop you and ask you if you would step out and talk with them. (laughs) This happened to Jesus. Keep in mind, they didn't come into the temple themselves to speak with him. No, they wanted, they sent a, a third party to go in and interrupt him and to try to get him to come out, to stop what he's doing and come out and talk with them. What's probably going on here is that they've come to Jerusalem to put a stop to all of this revolutionary figure nonsense and to beg him to come back to Nazareth with them. Remember in Jesus' day, you didn't leave your family, you know, leave your hometown and go into the big city and make something of yourself. That's an American narrative. You didn't do that back then and you certainly didn't go and make yourself into a revolutionary figure because you'd be dead as Jesus was killed, right? But his, his own family could be implicated. They, their lives were perhaps in jeopardy too. So they're there to basically confront him and say, enough of this. You need to come home with us. Stop this. You've got a business back home with your father. Yeah. But notice what Jesus does. He, he says, no, essentially, I'm not, I'm not stepping out with you. And then he says, here are my mothers, my brothers, and my sisters. You know, gesturing towards his audience. He says that those who do the will of God, these are my family. This, these are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters. Notice what he's doing here. Radically subverting the power structures of his day and, and redefining the idea of family, redefining the idea of kin, kinship. We talk about the kingdom of God. I prefer to call it the, the kingdom of God, the family of God has its own traditions, its own values, and they can be radically different from that of our world. You know, justice and love and compassion and truth-telling. But Jesus radically redefined kinship for his day by doing this. And I think the point is, is this. When we think about our identity, when we think about who we are in the world, it's not that we're no longer, just because we're a Christian, doesn't mean that we're no longer you know, black, white, gay, straight, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, um, American, Bolivian, whatever, whatever, we still hold on to those identities. Those things are true about us. But those identities are superseded by a greater identity in Christ. And this, we might be able to say, is our shared human identity. We're all a part of these smaller, separate tribes, and those are important tribes to be a part of. Christian, Jewish, you know, Hindu, Buddhist, Those are all important tribes to be a part of. But there is a greater tribe that we're all a part of that supersedes that in Christ. And that is our shared human identity. And we identify with that tribe when we live into justice and love and compassion. Being people of truth and honesty in our innermost being, that tribe, that tribal identity, you know, supersedes all all others. That's what I think Jesus is, is getting at here. Um, so, I want us to enter into a time of, of dialogue this morning, and uh, I want to do that by inviting you to have a little conversation for five or ten minutes with your neighbor. Just get together with three or four of the people around you, turn your chairs, and this is going to be the question I want, us, I want you to converse about, and then we'll get back together and discuss it as a larger group. What's been the cost of discipleship for you? What's been the cost of discipleship for you? Um, what has following this path, or, or what's, what's been difficult about your spiritual journey, your faith journey? You can answer one or both of those, whichever one works for you. But turn, turn around, um, get together with three or four of the people around you, uh, discuss that for a few minutes, and then we'll get together as a larger group and, uh, and re-engage. Thanks. <laughs>
0: each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here is this week's unedited discussion.
1: All right, everybody. Let's reconvene. Sounds like some good convo happening there. Um, Very cool. So, obviously, I want to give you a chance at this point. Is there music playing? That sounds maybe fitting. I like music underneath my my talking. Maybe we should just let music play throughout the entire sermon, make it more dramatic. Um, All right, so I want to hear from you about, like, what, what... what did you talk about, I guess, is what we want to get to. You know, what's been the cost of discipleship for you? What's been the, the most difficult thing about your spiritual journey? Anybody want to share? Love to hear from some of you. Yeah, David. I'm going to hand you this mic. We'll see if it works. Check, check.
0: Do I need to stand? Or?
1: You don't have to stand okay. if you don't want to. I'll sit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm don't sitting. want to be the sit. Uh, um. Yeah, that mic's cutting out. Here, okay. use this one. Use this one. Use All this one. Right. Thank you.
0: Uh, so, I was just discussing with Angie uh, and my fiance um, about the cost of following my own path. My father's side is super fundamentalist They're, they everything is as the Bible says, everything's literal, and there's no escaping that and um, having that sort of i guess environment I just i i I couldn't really get into it as a kid I' just sort of followed the rules and just like, okay, yes, pray this way, kneel this way, and like, keep your leg at a nine degree angle and all this other crazy stuff. You know, you know just it just felt like it was just so rigid and like nothing, you couldn't question anything. And my mother's side was totally different where you could present, you know, questions and, um, you know, you could challenge certain things to a certain extent. Um, and so what it cost me is just a relationship with that side of the family. I just, I don't, talk to them i don't associate with them i mean i visit them when i'm at home but there's no real relationship um you know it sucks but that's just kind of the way it is so that's my experience
1: thanks david yeah it's pretty common somebody else want to share cost of discipleship or what's been the hardest part of your spiritual journey yeah 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 i see jp and then i'll get to isabel
0: um well in in our group I thought it was interesting that um most of us shared some sort of loss of connection yeah. to to people whether it's actual family or spiritual family um and also uh loss of certainty which I feel like that's most of everything um in my case it, it was people that I um uh, sort Of came up in the faith with and work in ministry, and so the friendship was like a the spiritual family to some degree, and um, yeah, that they're just doing a different thing, and so
2: yeah. um, so for, for me, growing up, you know, in an abusive home and dealing with um, uh, sexual abuse and trauma, um, I <laughs> I held on to this sense of hope for something better. Um, I remember even as a young person, um, just feeling um, like there's got to be something better. And even when I was going through it, um, my family doesn't talk to me. Uh, I've tried to reach out to them. Both my parents are past, you know, they're dead now, but my sister, um, you know, uh, my, my whole like culture because I, you know, my parent, my, my kids are African American and Armenian. And so I've, I've mentioned that before here. It's just like, I've, I've shunned from the community. Um, but I think what is exciting to me, uh, I'm a songwriter as well. As a teacher, um, is in my music and, um, my beliefs, I think, um, what's made me different from my family, <laughs> they're very status driven, um, and, 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 and sort of image driven, um, is, um. And they see me kind of like as a doormat. You know, people take advantage of you. I'm such a schmuck. I mean, those are many other names I've heard. But um, you know what? I live the life I live because I still have hope. And um, in my music, I'm working on that being my beautiful thing that I'm out of my struggles.
1: Thanks, Isabelle. Thanks, JP. Somebody else? want to share? You know, JP, you, you raised this idea of the loss of certainty as being part of the cost for you, as being, you know, part of what's happened in your spiritual journey. And who was it? it? was It was Aiden that raised that? Yeah. Well, whoever it was. <laughs> no, I was thinking about that, that, yeah, that can initially feel like a loss, right, and something that we regret losing. But I wonder if if some of these things that we've lost on, on this path can actually be seen as a positive after the fact, right? Kind of like our loss of certainty. Like, coming to terms with our unknowing and our doubt at first is a traumatic experience, right? Coming to terms with deconstruction, that we no longer believe the things that we used to, perhaps, or the God we once hang, hung on to for hope and, and you know, resiliency and, and peace, that this God has somehow died crucified, right? I, I wonder if in the aftermath of that loss and the, um, the pain of that, that something can be gained positive, right? Courage, perhaps. That there can be a kind of serenity that can be found in the aftermath where we've learned that we can actually find a deeper kind of peace and serenity in life by embracing our uncertainties, embracing our doubt, embracing the fact that what we once believed maybe wasn't entirely true, you know, and making peace with that and realizing we can move on, we can go on, that life itself didn't fall apart, that we're still here and we still love things and we still love people and life hasn't really lost all the luster we thought it would, right? I. I think that there are things in our spiritual journeys where initially it can feel like we gave up something big for God, but in the aftermath we find out that it really is a blessing that we gave it up. That's kind of what I'm thinking right now. I, I, my spirit, in my spiritual journey, that's certainly been true. Um, and perhaps that's that dialectical move between crucifixion and resurrection, right? Right? That the Christian experience, the quintessential Christian experience is this experience of losing something that we once profoundly found meaningful and identified with. Maybe, you know, this kind of God, right? This God is crucified. Dies. But something is resurrected afterwards. That there's joy to be found. There's hope to be found in the aftermath. By getting through this traumatic experience, we can find a way, we can be born again so to speak. We can be transfigured, resurrected, to use these Christian terms that we love, right? But we gotta undergo the death for something has to die for us to truly live. This, to me, is the quintessential Christian experience. And Christ talks about this as the cost of discipleship, right? But anyway, in that deconstruction, I think, is part of that cost for us. But it's not all doom and gloom. There is a resurrection to be found. There is transfiguration. There is hope. There is a new life. And it's better than before, in my opinion. We have been set free. We have been set free from something that once was oppressive. Now we are free in Christ to truly live in love as he has called us. I I think that's good news. I think that's great news. That's the kind of community we uh, endeavor to be here. Well, thank you for participating in this experimental uh, layout this morning. uh, I encourage you uh, to give us your feedback, not right now. But, uh, you know, after service, maybe at the meeting, we'll talk about this. Um, and again, if if you're here this morning, we talk about membership. And I know that maybe sounds very old school church, but we do that just to be clear because this property has to be owned by somebody. It can't be owned by me. It has to be owned by us. And so being a part of this community means you're part of the government that owns all this and, and maintains this for for others. And so we I encourage you that even if you're not a quote-unquote member, hang out for the meeting. Get, get to know us a little better. You're gonna, you are gonna get to see the budget. Get to see where the money goes. We're entirely transparent here. Maybe that's really boring. Uh, but uh, I don't know. It's, I expect it to be at the most a half an hour meeting, and we'll get it started in about 10 minutes, okay? So it's 11.18 now. We're getting out a little early. Hang out if you can. Otherwise, thanks for being here. Go in peace.